Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Our next guest has co-founded or founded around 20 companies and written the same number of books. He has an Amazon Prime series out. He's an idea man, a comedian, blogger, podcaster, chess master, husband, father, and has a great daddy story of his own. Today's guest is the one, the only, James Altucher. How are you? Good. How are you? It's Rena. How do you say your name? Rena. Okay, Rena. It's Hebrew. Hebrew. Okay, what's the Hebrew for? Joy. Joy. Okay, good name. Thanks. And it was my middle name too, Rena Joy. I was like, oh great, Rena Joy Joy. That's funny. Why did your parents gave you the, give you the same name for both names? I guess because it's a different language. Just in case you ever forgot what <laughs> Rena means, someone could say to you, well, what's your middle name? And you're like, ah, oh, it's Joy. I forgot. That's what Rena means. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me on your podcast. I actually was reading your quote that was in your Instagram feed. I wanted to read that out loud because I think it is so good. You can't hate people who reject you, nor can you bless the people who love you. Everyone is acting out of his or her own self-interest. What you need to do is build the house you will live in. You build that house by laying a solid foundation, by building physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. Excerpt from the book, Choose Yourself by James Altucher. I was interested in what is your relationship with God? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've thought a lot about it. So I'm born Jewish, but I wasn't really raised that way. And I think like many people, I've explored a lot of different religions and categories. I mean, I have a little bit of a story behind it. Can I tell you the story? When I was in seventh grade, I had the worst braces possible. It's like these silver metal, dirty train tracks with the rubber bands. Like this is old school braces, like rubber bands and a night brace and all these things. And then I had glasses and I had acne and my head grew a lot faster than my body. So I had this like huge pumpkin head on my, you know, little toddler body. (laughs) But I also, I was like, liked, girls and so i figured well not it's not working out for me like this is a bad situation that i'm in so the only way i'm gonna meet anybody is if i get psychic powers and somehow enhance my charisma through these psychic powers to attract everyone to me and so i would buy these like pop psychic books in the metaphysics section of the bookstore and they were all kind of really super watered down, bastardized versions of meditation and Buddhism and Taoism. So I got obsessed with reading, not just about Buddhism or Taoism, but about every, about every religion and the spirituality of every religion. And ultimately I, I kind of picked and chose what I believed in, which was not a lot. I think it's good to keep belief systems simple. The, the simpler something is, the more likely it is to be, you know, something resembling either a a philosophy that can help you or a philosophy that may be true. And essentially I like meditation and part of meditation is 
forget about the act of meditation for a second. Kind of the belief system of meditation is just that nothing is really that important, even your thoughts. So people think meditation is about, oh, if you meditate, you'll get enlightenment, which somehow means you're one with the universe. For me, that's total BS. There's no such thing as enlightenment. Uh, meditation is a process just like working out in the gym is. It, it kind of improves your muscle. For, but the muscle for what? Of recognizing all the things you have no control over and being okay with that. Now, you ever find yourself in the middle of the day thinking about someone who wronged you like a year ago and you're thinking, well, if I ever run into that person again, I'm going to say this, this, and this. So meditation is like practicing the muscle of noticing when you have a useless thought like that and saying, oh, this is irrelevant to me improving as a person and to me enjoying my life right now. So I'm just going to stop thinking about this. And so meditation kind of helps build that muscle of recognizing the thoughts and actions and beliefs that one might have that really have no relevance to how well you are doing and how well you can be doing right now. In terms of metaphysically, like who created the universe? Why is there a universe? What is the meaning of things? Is there a code of ethics created by, you know, whatever it is that is primal to the universe that one should follow? I don't believe in any of that. That doesn't mean I don't believe in God. It means that I surrender to whatever mystery is out there. We know one billionth of 1% of what there is to know about the universe. And certainly if there is some kind of creator, there's no way to understand other than in a huge metaphorical way what that creator is. Just because the universe is so complex, we don't even know from a scientific point of view, 90% of the universe is made up of something called dark energy, which we have no clue what that is. So there's so many things we just don't understand about the universe, including what might be the purpose of it, which might be beyond the conception of our brains. Our brains were created just to help us find food. We were relatively weak primates. Like any other primate can rip a human being to shreds. So like a, the smallest chimpanzee or monkey can r totally destroy a human being. And so the way we survived as a species was by developing a brain to more cleverly find food than our competition. This brain, I'm assuming, is not sophisticated enough to figure out the secrets of the universe since that's not critical for finding food or love or whatever. And I'm assuming that applies to spiritual matters as well, if there's something beyond. There's one thing, though, which is sometimes I find myself in a state where I almost review things in reverse. So instead of me looking at objects and then interpreting them, it's almost like I, I, I believe in a universe where everything is sort of put in front of me almost as like a joke. Like here's now this situation. Here's now this situation. What do you think? Here's now this situation. And so it's all put in front of me so I could learn and enjoy without having any idea of why these things, these situations, these people, these material objects are being put in my path. It's just for me to enjoy and learn from. So maybe that's a way of somehow connecting with some concept of, of a God. Yom Kippur was just put in front of you. Did you repent at all? I did not because I don't really believe in repentance.
And I understand the, the reason for believing in it and the value of it. The, the great thing about Judaism, by the way, is that there's always layers of meaning. And when you get to the deeper layers in Judaism, it's so beautiful. A lot of things are symbolic. And then when you get into what the reasons for the symbolism are, it's like these deeply encoded reasons that are deep in the, in the religion that I always find, whether they're religious or practical or whatever, it's very interesting. So in terms of repenting, I don't believe in that because I basically view anything I've done in the past, I take responsibility for, but at the same time, it's the past and I focus on the future and I focus on what I'm doing right now. In terms of a code of ethics, we all sort of know when we feel like we're doing something good and when we feel like we're doing something bad. I don't really need to see, you know, Moses' Ten Commandments, although that's a pretty good guide as well. And the, the first listicle blog was Moses' Ten Commandments, and that's fine. Or maybe the Code of Hammurabi was 200 years before Moses is possible. But um, so, yeah, I don't really repent on Yom Kippur. Uh, I don't I don't support it at all. Although I am happy to say with Rosh Hashanah that the year that we all suffered through is over. It's a good thing. You could either choose that your year ends when 2020 ends. But, you know, in this one particular instance, I'll say goodbye, 5780. You sucked. Welcome, 5781. That's funny. I have heard from a bunch of people that meditation has helped them get over depression. Do you feel like it's helped you feel like less of a zero? I know that you've mentioned that you felt like a zero before. Yeah, I don't know if it does. Really, meditation, and the way it could help with depression is you're meditating, and suddenly while you're meditating, your mind, like it will, will start to wander, and you'll start thinking about the things that depress you, or you'll start feeling sad. And then again, remember, meditation is just practice. It's not nothing really special happens during meditation. It's really practice for the rest of the day. But what happens is you notice your mind wandering and it getting sad and you say, oh, let's just pull back to the meditation. I'm not going to go in that direction right now. I'm, I'm meditating. So you pull back and you, it's almost like you start from scratch meditating and you practice over and over and over again, noticing when your mind starts to wander in any direction, whether you're happy or sad or whatever. And that's what meditation is. It's just really practice for noticing when your mind starts to wander, which it does all day long. And the, the key thing is sometimes it wanders in dangerous directions like depression or happiness or you know too, too much happiness or ego or whatever. Or, or you start thinking about Twitter or the election or your friends. You know, that's not relevant right now. I'm meditating. And, and then the rest of the day, when your mind starts to wander again, you're able to say, oh, this is like what happened in meditation. I'm gonna pull, it's not worthwhile for me, so I'm going to pull myself back. Now, in terms of curing depression, you know, depression could be because of circumstances like, oh, someone close to me died, so I'm sad about it and I'm depressed. Or it could be clinical depression where you need medication. So meditation is not going to help for, for clinical depression. In fact, I know someone who was an obsessive meditator. She would do... Vipassana meditation, which is you go to a Vipassana retreat. They're all over the world. They're free. And it's based on a certain sect of Buddhism. And you go for like two weeks or 10 days where all you do 12 hours a day, more or less, I'm being rough about this, is meditate. And so it's a very intense two-week session. And this friend of mine, she would go like five to 10 times a year to these two-week intense meditation sessions. And when she was 
pregnant with twins. She was married and pregnant with twins. She drove 600 miles to a very high up bridge and jumped off it and killed herself. So she had other issues that she thought meditation would handle, but don't really rely on meditation for anything because the whole idea of meditation is you're doing nothing. And if you rely on it as a cure for anything or a solution for anything, it's, it's not going to work, which is what I realized in seventh grade when still no girls liked me. And so meditation was not useful for that, nor was it useful for my friend who really was clinically depressed. I'm really sorry about your friend. That's awful. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a long time ago now, but I think about it occasionally, like, cause I knew her and I didn't really even sense that she had some underlying issues. And, I, and sometimes I say to myself, not everybody who commits suicide, everybody says, oh, this person committed suicide. They must've had a problem. They must've had issues. We don't really know. Some, sometimes it's just one instant. They think, oh, I'm just going to do this. Or one thing makes them unhappy and they get so in despair that they do this. We don't know if they had underlying issues, underlying problems. We don't, it's so easy to judge after the fact, but I think the good thing about meditation also is it kind of stops you from having too, too much judgment because usually judgments are, are wrong or inappropriate or not really that useful for figuring out a situation. So I don't really know what was happening with her. All I could say is meditation probably didn't help whatever depression she might've had. Do you think medication would have helped that? I don't know, because if someone goes to a doctor, let's say I'm clinically depressed, which I have been at times, which means I'm probably not going to get out of it without medication. Now, there's an argument that also physical exercise and eating well will get out of a depression, but I have found in cases where I've been severely depressed that medication more or less worked. But the problem is if someone is depressed and they go to a doctor, like a psychiatrist who can prescribe medication, on average, it takes eight years, eight years to find the appropriate medication for your depression because there's many kinds of depression. You could be clinically depressed because you're lacking dopamine. You could be clinically depressed because you're lacking serotonin. You know, your base level of serotonin might not be, might be lower than another person. You could be clinically depressed because certain hormones are out of whack or you're having a brain mood disorder in the part of your brain that, you know, measures happiness and excitement and, and or regulates happiness and excitement. And for each one of those things is a different medication. So a lot of times when I've been depressed, antidepressants were useless to me, no matter which ones I tried. It turned out maybe I, I more had an anxiety disorder. Let's say I lose all my money. I, it might be that I don't get depressed, but that I get anxious and afraid. Like, how am I going to feed my family or how am I going to live? And I'm just anxious all the time. So I can't sleep. I might be depressed too. So that's why it's hard to tell the difference, but I might be sad about losing all my money, but actually an anxiety disorder means I might have more anxiety than the average person in similar circumstances. And so I definitely had an anxiety disorder and anti-anxiety medication helped. The problem is there's side effects to anti-anxiety medication, in including it's just as addictive as like crack cocaine or maybe more addictive. And so it's a very difficult thing. To, it helps. It, it really helps. Like I remember I started taking anti-anxiety medication. And by the way, after eight years of searching for the right medication, but finally one doctor gave me anti-anxiety medication and it worked and it worked, it worked right away. Like I literally, the next day I felt I was 
getting anxious, but there was like a wall in my brain where I wasn't capable of getting more anxious. Like it stopped me from getting more anxious than the average person. It stopped me from getting as anxious as I usually get. And so I was like, this is great. Up the dosage. So I upped the dosage, but then I became physically addicted to it. Not psychologically addicted. I, I probably didn't need the medication anymore after a year of taking it, but I was addicted to it. I couldn't physically get off of it. I could only reduce. And I'm still, by the way, in reduction because I had upped my dosage so high, you can only reduce very slowly or you'll have uh, really horrible side effects, like horrible to the point of real injury. And so you reduce very slowly and I'm at the last six months of reducing after 10 years of this. When you talk about being anxious prior to getting onto stage, that actually made me feel like so much less anxious about talking to you. Cause I was like, oh cool. I'm like, he gets anxious too. So that like completely put me at ease. I get, yeah, I get anxious all the time. I have an anxiety disorder. I think I'm much better now at dealing with it. And by the way, the medication no longer helps me because it only helps you if you keep increasing the dosage. I've been reducing the dosage for 10 years. So my anxiety now has nothing to do one way or the other with the medication I take. But do I get anxious all the time. In fact, before I go on stage, if I don't get anxious, I get nervous. I get anxious about not being anxious because I know if I'm like, oh, this is no problem. I'm going to kill this. Then I probably won't do well. Anxiety has a useful role in the human body, which is like it gets your brain a little more active. It gets your body a little bit more you know, receptive to stimuli so that nothing can throw you off. And that's appropriate amount of anxiety. So I get nervous if I'm about to go on stage for any reason at all, or I'm about to do a podcast. If I don't get anxious, then I think, oh no, this is not going to turn out good. So then I get anxious about being anxious and that resets me. I also think like who wouldn't be anxious losing $15 million? Yeah. But then, and again, it wasn't depression. It wasn't like I'd be stay in bed and, and uh, you don't feel like moving and you just want to die because you just wouldn't have any energy left. I had energy, thought all my energy was gonna make me worse and worse and worse. And I was scared to death that I just was gonna go, just lose everything. My, just gonna be homeless, my kids would be homeless. I would never get a job again. People would hate me because I associated at that time net worth with self-worth. And I was just anxious about so many things. So it wasn't good. And I, and I stayed that way for, for 10 years. Wow. Yeah, I want to talk about the whole net worth is self-worth thing, your relationship around money. Yeah, I think there's kind of the story, which is that I built a bunch of different businesses. Some failed, some succeeded. But the first successful business I started was in the mid-90s. I sold it for millions and millions of dollars, like generational wealth. And in a very short period of time, and it was all cash. It wasn't like on paper, it wasn't anything. It was all cash, it was literally in my checking account. And in a very short period of time, I lost all of it. I was down, I went from $15 million in my checking account to $143 in my checking account. And my expenses at that point were huge because I had ramped up my expenses when I made money. I had never had money before in my life. When I got out of school and started my first job, I had $0 in the bank. I paid for my own college through debt, you know, since leaving my parents' house or even before then, because I had jobs all through high school, I always was both broke and self-sufficient and that was fine. But then I made all this money and I didn't know, even know what it meant to make this kind of money. 
And there's three skills with money, making it, keeping it, growing it. And I was okay at making it. I thought at that time I was very lucky. So maybe I was not so okay at making it. I was decent at making it, but I had zero skills at keeping it and growing it. So I just lose it. And I say skills because this happened more than once. My next business I sold, I made it and then I lost it. Next business I sold, I made it and then I lost it. Next business, made it, lost it, broke, lost a house, lost family. It's the fourth time. Finally, I started making it, keeping it, growing it, and got a little better with it. But to rewind a little bit, I grew up in a house where my dad was a very unsuccessful entrepreneur. It was always like, dad, when's it all going to work out? When can I, are you ever, am I ever going to have an allowance? Am I going to be able to buy like baseball cards or books or whatever? And he was like, next month, I have a big deal I'm working on next month. Everything's going to happen. And he was always very optimistic, but he never, it never happened. Next month never happened. And he basically, he had a nervous breakdown and essentially, I don't want to say he died from it, but he just did nothing like the last 15 years of his life, except he, he was depressed. He actually was depressed and would take all sorts of medications for it. That was the house I grew up in. It was very depressed. He would you know, and I don't mean to say anything bad about him. He was a very good, smart person. He taught me a lot about the most important thing for him was honesty. And he really was firm with that. But to see him like in the middle of a grocery store, start crying, you know, it would just be random. He was going through a lot with his own money situation. And so I thought like, oh, and I also saw when he lost everything, he lost friends, he lost family. He lost his ability to create opportunities for himself. He only had that one chance potentially. And so I figured, oh, by his example, I saw money really was, net worth really was self-worth. That was what one of the things I learned from him. I learned some good things and I learned some bad things, you know, but I grew up with that and it stuck with me and maybe it even still is with me a little bit. I hope not, but certainly was with me when I lost money. I was so ashamed and afraid to tell anyone. And I also lost all my friends and lost family and lost opportunities. And I started to think, oh my gosh, I'm having a parallel life to my dad. And then I got divorced just like he got divorced. And, you know, so many things were in parallel. I got really scared. And, you know, cause then ultimately he had like a nervous breakdown. And then after that he had a stroke and all these things. And so I thought I'm just going in this direction. I'm just copying him exactly. And it took me a long time to get over that. And it wasn't like medication or therapy. None of that helped me get over it. I just had to get over it. And so I like, that's why I don't even know if I'm fully over it, but I, I hope I am. It seems like I am, but we'll see. I was going to say, how can you get over that? Well, you realize that you have your own. It's like you said in the quote from me, which I didn't even remember. I'll have to look on Instagram to read that quote again, but you build your own house based on your own characteristics. You become your own person. So I'm physically different than my dad. I'm, and I focus on physical health. I'm emotionally different because I focus on emotional health in different ways. I'm create. He was a super creative guy, which is part of his optimism because no matter what problem he saw in front of him, he would figure out ways to around it. But I focus on my creative health. Like it's a gym, like it's going to the gym. I'm going to now exercise my creative health and spiritual health is something he never thought about. And I know that's where I'm very different from him. I built my own house and chose myself. And I take responsibility for what happens to me. Anything good can happen to anybody. 
And I know some people will say, well, it can't happen to me because X, I'm disabled, or I'm LBGTQ, or I'm a, a different race, or part of some other marginalized community, or I was in jail. Trust me when I say pretty much everybody in every category, I know some people who have achieved great success and some people who haven't. And I do admit some people have harder circumstances and it's a bit harder, but you still have a chance moving forward to overcome all that. Like, do you know John Morrow? No. So John Morrow is a blogger, lives in Austin, Texas. And since birth, John Morrow can't move any part of his body except maybe like his hands and his eyes. And, you know, he's basically paralyzed from the neck down, but he could navigate his chair. And I really love this guy. He's a good guy and is a friend of mine. And he had a business idea about monetizing his blog. This is a long time ago. And he had to go to Mexico because he had to get off of disability. If you're on disability insurance from the government, which he needed, obviously, he couldn't, he was paralyzed. He had to get off of disability so he can make money in other ways. Otherwise, he wouldn't get his, I don't know, so he couldn't get medical insurance. So he needed to move to Mexico to get medical insurance that a little cheaper while he built his business. He's made millions of dollars. I'm not saying everybody who's in his position can make millions of dollars, but he did it. That's one example. Maybe there's not any others, but, you know, I've seen many situations. Anything from getting out of jail, what do I do now, to, you know, I live in a project, how do I get out of here, or I'm... I'm seven years old and I was just fired and I don't have money. What do I do? And and they read my books or listen to the podcast and they write me later like, oh, this, 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 and this helped me and now I'm doing this. So I've seen lots of cases, thousands of cases where people from any circumstances have been able to choose themselves and help themselves and, and find some success. So I know my problems are relatively simple compared to a lot of those. So, okay, I was scared. I was going to be like my dad. And I was scared because I didn't have any money skills. So I went broke many times. But moving forward, if you're focused on it, you can solve little problems every day until finally you're solving the bigger problems. Yeah. I love what you said about just getting 1% better every single day. I told that to my dad last night and he was like, yeah, because if you get 1% better every day for 365 days a year, that's 365% better. Right. But that's not actually true because that's only adding the 1%. It's compounds. So the, by compounding, you actually get 1% better a day, 365 times is 3,700% better. So if there was a really a way to measure what better means, you would be 37 times better, not three times better, but 37 times better. You know, the compounding thing's important. Like 1% of one is 1.01. So now the next time you apply 1%, which is the next day, you're working, you're not working off of one, you're working off of 1.01. So it's a little bit more. It's like, now you're like 1.021, not 1.02 and, and so on. I want to talk a little bit about your Amazon Prime series. Yeah. First of all, I love it. Oh, thank you. How did that come about? By the way, I haven't watched it. So was it, it was good? <laughs> really? Yeah, I don't, I didn't want to watch it. How come? I don't know, just... I watch myself on video a lot or I listen to myself because I, I listen to my podcast to see how I could be better. You know, I do stand up comedy. So I watch my performances to see, to learn from what mistakes I made. Sometimes you can't, you don't know when you're thinking about it or when you're doing it, what your mistakes are, but you can see very clearly, oh, that thing I just did was really bad. 
and you could see your ums and your ahs and you could see whether you're nervous or not and you could see what jokes people really aren't laughing about or they're talking to each other. And so I, I watch myself a lot and I don't really don't like to. And watching a whole video series, I mean, I'm really happy it was done. Really, really, really super happy it was done. But I, I really can't handle watching it. And, and I know the production company did a balanced job. Like there was one scene I saw where one of my daughters Molly, she was saying, I wish I could spend more time with my dad. And that made me feel sad. So I didn't really want more moments like that. And, you know, but I'm really glad it got done. And I'm really glad, from what I understand, it kind of explained a lot of the ideas from my books and used my stories as it kind of used documentary style to present my stories, to show what my ideas, how my ideas helped me and others. And so I'm really glad it was, it was done. Basically, this guy just approached me and said, I want to do a documentary about your book, Choose Yourself. He did, made this eight-episode series. He's done other documentaries like that. And then Amazon released it. I think it's doing okay. I have no financial relationship with it. I know it was a lot of work. He followed me around for years. And it was even a lot of work on my part. And it affected a lot of people in my life because they were interviewed and they appear on there. And I've seen in the first episode friend of mine who's a comedian says, is James broke again? Probably, but he'll make it back tomorrow. And that guy's very funny. He's just a, got a funny way of doing things. And so I liked that my friends were involved. I loved when you said that the average kid laughs 300 times, but the average adult laughs like four or five times. Yeah, that's true. That's a real statistic. You know, it's an average. Some adults laugh, laugh more and some kids laugh less, but that's the truth. Like kids are free and easy and they, they laugh with their friends and they play. Adults are like, oh, I'll play later. I got to go to work. I got to make money. I got to support my family. I got to discipline my kids. I've got to deal with my boss. I've got to deal with issues. I'm angry at my spouse or friends or colleagues or the president or whatever. And people just get absorbed in their lives and they stop playing and they stop laughing and they stop having fun when there's no real need for that. It's not like there's a reason why it's important to laugh less. It's just, this is what happens. People laugh less when they're, when they're older. So you said you should focus on your home, but your daughter feels like you're not spending enough time with her. So who are you as a dad? I'm a really loving and caring dad. I have two biological kids, three stepkids, and I love all five very, very much. And I'm always there for my kids. But like, for instance, my biological kids, they largely grew up with their mom, so I wouldn't be able to see them as much. And now they're adults, you know, they're young adults, they're out of the house, so they have their own lives. But I'm so happy when I spend time with them and I, I try to make time for them to visit me or for me to visit them. I mean. They're 18 years old and 21 years old. And Molly, that one that was in the one scene, that was such a great time because we went to London and Paris together. It was like this vacation. We decided to go on just the two of us. And for me, it was a little bit business, but I really just wanted to spend the time with her. And in fact, at the time, I was dating somebody who I was thinking of getting married to. And I said to her, why don't you, you should come along too. We're going to go to London, Paris. It'll be great. It'll be romantic. Molly's going, it'll be fun. And she didn't want to go because she didn't want to go 
because I'd be spending time with my kid. So she just didn't want to go. So I ended the relationship. Because it, so that's how important my kids are to me. <laughs> like they're the most important. My wife is very important to me, obviously, just as important or more because your, your close, intimate relationship is important. With that person in question, I'm fortunate I wasn't married to because I was able to say, okay, it's not working out because if she doesn't like this now, going to Paris and London, just because my kid's going to be there, that's not a good sign. I agree. Do you have a daddy's girl? I don't play favorites, but I guess, you know, maybe in some circumstances I do. Like, each kid's good at their own thing. So when you're with that kid, they might be your the daddy's girl on that, those things that they're great at and that you really admire about them. And, and you know, everybody everybody's special. So you have to find the things that are special about them that you could, you know, pay attention to and help them develop, particularly if they're kids and young. And different times, they're angry at you for different reasons. And that might last a few months or a year or whatever. You know, they might be going through something like puberty or figuring out who they are as an adult. And that means they want to be a little more independent from you. But in, in general, I love all of them. And again, that applies to my stepkids too. I have four daughters, two biological daughters, two stepdaughters, and one stepson. So there's four daughters, all, all between the ages of 18 and 21. And I have one stepson who's 21. And I love them all. And they all have different things that are really special about them. There's a difference between having one or two kids and having four or five and, or more is that you really, there's, there's so many different things you can appreciate about each one and they're all different. When you were describing yourself in seventh grade, I have a seventh grader that is so much like that. So he has very thick glasses. He got glasses at three. He has like the eyes of an 80 year old. He's going through, you know, puberty, which is kind of like awkward stage where he's starting to get pimples and like ask me about girls and oh my gosh, it's such a hard age. I feel for him. I was really super happy. Like as my daughters were, when they were born, you know, and they were babies, I was super happy that I had two daughters because if I had a biological son, the danger would be that they would suffer through puberty the way I did. And I did not want to wish that on anyone. Unfortunately, my daughters are strikingly beautiful. By the way, biological and stepdaughters. And I never had to worry about them in that, in that sense. Although, of course, body image, everybody faces, but young women have different issues than, than young men. One of my favorite stories that you told on your IG Live over the summer was about how you were awkward and still landed a hot chick like Robin. Yeah. Well, this is the whole thing is that I wrote a book once called The Power of No. Now, did I write this because I'm really great at saying no? No, I wrote this because I'm horrible at saying no. And I had to learn and I had to learn all the nuances and what was wrong with me and what was my problem that I couldn't say no when I needed to. And going through that experience gave me experience and knowledge and research and stories about how to say no. So I wrote a book, The Power of No. A good book comes out of failure and learning then from that failure and, and multiple failures and so on. So like, let's say I would never ask Brad Pitt for advice on how to meet girls. Here's how Brad Pitt meets a girl. He basically goes up to any woman on the planet and says, hey, and that's it. So if he would write a book, 
he's going to write Brad Pitt's Guide to Meeting Girls. It's just going to be one page. It's going to be, well, here's what you do. You go up to a girl and you just say, hey. And that's the entire book. Now, for me, I had to develop extra skills. <laughs> Saying, hey, never would work for me. And so I had to be knowledgeable about lots of things. I had to try to be as funny as possible in, in social situations. I had to be very gracious and both gentlemanly and manly and had to learn what that means because being an awkward, skinny, you know, kid with pimples and braces and glasses, it's not the definition of a masculine man. And I had to learn about masculinity in a different way than Mike Tyson or Brad Pitt or LeBron James had to learn about it. I love that. And I, I was wondering too, because I know you built a dating website. Did yeah. you ever try to score any chicks off of that? No, no. In fact, but I, I only built that and it, it didn't work out. Like, and I knew pretty quickly that it wasn't going to work out, but that is the reason to build a dating site. That's why Mark Zuckerberg built, built Facebook was to meet women. So that was my thinking. Actually, there's a lot of nuances and subtleties in building a successful dating site that's going to go viral. Like I really admire anyone who's built a successful dating site because I've built probably 10 of them and none of them worked. Really the, the only businesses that I've succeeded at are businesses where I was the expert, where, where nobody knew that domain better than me. And dating sites, I was just never really the expert. And there was a lot of people who knew much more and they built successful dating sites. What was it like to work at HBO? Oh, it was great. So I worked at HBO from 1994 to 1997. And I remember I was doing nothing before that. So my friend and I, we would watch TV all day long and we would watch HBO. We'd go back and forth between HBO and MTV and we would watch it all day, like 12 straight hours. And I just really loved the shows on HBO. And this is in the 90s. So it was a different category of shows, but HBO was the first cable network to really create their own original programming. And unlike the original programming on the other channels, and by the way, that's just ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox, that was all broadcast shows, which had a certain kind of flavor, like family-friendly in most cases, and or, or police procedurals or whatever. Whereas HBO would do these like insane, crazy, offbeat shows with sexual content and adult content. So like at the time, there was the Larry Sanders show, there was a show called Dream On, which nobody really remembers anymore, and there, there were some other shows. And they just kept getting better and better. And I'm like, oh, I want to be, at the time I was trying to be a writer. I was, I was writing fiction every single day. And from 1991 on, I was writing 3,000 words a day and I really wanted to publish a novel. And I just loved the content and the creativity at HBO. So finally I got up enough nerve to apply there. And that's a whole story, but magically I got a, a job as a programmer there. I was in the IT department as a programmer. And I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm at the famous HBO in the famous New York City. Like, I loved it. By the way, at the same time, I got a job offer from JP Morgan for double the salary. So at HBO, 1994, they offered me 40000 a year. JP Morgan, the exact same day, offered me 80000 a year. I took the HBO job because you got to do what you love. I didn't know anything about a bank or programming. I didn't want to program at a bank. I didn't want to program at all, but I used the programmer thing to get into HBO. But, and I loved their, their product and HBO was owned by time Warner and I loved DC comics and Warner brothers movies and time magazine. And I loved, 
I, I became an expert on all the different entertainment brands. I just loved it and being part of that world, even though I was just a programmer. None of the other programmers at HBO even thought about watching HBO. They just were programming. But I was like, no, 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 it's all connected. And so I became obsessed with, I'm here at HBO, the best company in the world, as far as I was concerned. And so I made sure I would leave the IT department and become friends with people in all the other departments until finally I was pitching TV shows to them in various different ways and becoming part of what I viewed as the eight, you know, when you work as an employee at a company, you want to feel like you are the company. You're like a living representation of the ethos of that company. And so I felt like I was HBO, that I was creative in the way they were. And any thought I had could add to their creativity, just like they added to my creativity. So it was symbiotic. And that's what happened. And so for three years, I got more and more responsibility there from being a junior analyst programmer to just, you know, I was in charge of their website. I was making web series for them. I was shooting a TV pilot for them just a two and a half years later. And, and I was doing so many things that other companies, other entertainment companies asked me to do the same things for them. And so I started a company where I was building original. First off, I was building the original websites for American Express and other entertainment companies. But then a lot of companies wanted original web shows or series. These were almost like podcasts. Like I was doing a podcast for HBO in 1996, where I was interviewing prostitutes in New York City at three in the morning every week. And I did that for two and a half years and interviewed well over uh, thousands of people. And that's what I also shot as a pilot for HBO. My sister asked me if I could help out her husband, my brother-in-law. He was in the what was then called the CD-ROM business. Nobody knows what that even means. And I don't even know what that means anymore. And I said, no, 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 do this. There's this new thing called the web. It's brand new. Here's how you do it. And so he got into it and he was a designer and I was the software guy. He didn't speak English very well. So I would write all the proposals for him. So I was really involved. And I said, and finally I was to the point where, okay, let me just run the company because I'm already kind of running it. And then I became an entrepreneur full-time. And I haven't had a job since, even though I've been dead broke since. HBO was the last job I had. But you also said you hate being an entrepreneur. I hate it. That's so crazy. With the relationships yeah. that you have and the ability to reach who you can reach, you, you could work anywhere, probably. I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. That's the problem. I like doing what I do. So it's not like I'm a full-time entrepreneur right now. I write, so I write a lot of books. I, I do a lot of things that I do for free just because I love doing them. My podcast, I don't really make, you know, all the money that comes into the podcast through ads and other things, I pour back into improving the quality of the podcast and marketing the podcast. Books do okay for me, but not as good as investing or being an entrepreneur. But I've written a lot of books and anybody who's serious about making money, you probably don't want to be a writer because that doesn't make good money unless... Like I've been doing it long enough and I've read enough books that, okay, I do decently, but it's not anywhere compared to being an entrepreneur or, or a good investor. I've been doing stand-up comedy for six years and I always wonder, that takes about 30 or 40 hours a week, not since the lockdown, but before the lockdown. And I always wonder if I had diverted those 30 hours to being more of an entrepreneur, I probably would be 
probably would have started much bigger companies or whatever, but I just love doing that. And it's a skill that's an amazing skill for me. And, and it's helped me in other ways. And I like playing games since I was a kid. I'm a good, uh, like chess player, backgammon player, poker player, any card game, Scrabble, any game. I've kind of made it a point to be an official master, like tournament level master at every game. It's sort of like a side project for me. And I'm public speaker. I do lots of different things. The first day I started as an entrepreneur, the first call I made was to our biggest client and they said, look, sorry, we're going to bring this all in-house. We're not going to use you guys anymore. And I'm like, oh my God, I just quit this great job at HBO. And this was like 30% of our revenues, this client. Ugh. I remember I just left, I went for a pizza and I started crying in the pizza place. And you know, and that was my first day as an entrepreneur. And it never really got better after that, <laughs> except for the days where you make money, which are three or four of them out of years. Now though, I have an idea I'm excited about and I'm pursuing entrepreneurship from a different point of view now. I want to hear about the idea that you're excited about, but you said that you interviewed hundreds of prostitutes in New York. So that kind of caught my attention. Did you know Epstein? No, I didn't know Jeffrey Epstein. I don't know what he was. I guess he was around in the nineties. I think he's been around obviously for a long time, but I didn't know I wasn't in that circle at all. And the prostitutes that I interviewed were not like prostitutes on a private Island in the Caribbean. At the time, New York city was not, wasn't as bad as it was in the 1970s, but it wasn't the way it was now. So there were areas that were really horrible areas, particularly at night. So I'd go to one of these areas and there would be street walking prostitutes, which is different than the kind of situations Jeffrey Epstein was in. Obviously a lot of these prostitutes were people who were abused and who were abused in the foster care system or the juvenile delinquency system. A lot of them were uh, transgender or transsexual or mid trans or whatever. A lot of them had experienced a lot of racial stuff. All these people, for whatever reason, were forced to be on the fringes of society. And the areas you would find them in were literally on the fringe, like right next to one of the rivers that border Manhattan, like in the meatpacking district. So they were pushed to the fringes. And I learned a lot about people. And it, was, it wasn't just prostitutes I was interviewing. I was interviewing their clients. I was interviewing their pimps. I was interviewing their drug dealers. I was interviewing homeless people. And I was inter interviewing people who were just out at three in the morning. The whole criteria was you had to be out at three in the morning on like a Tuesday night. If you're out at three in the morning on a Tuesday night, it's probably a high chance. It's not a good reason why you're out at three in the morning. Saturday night, you're at a party. Tuesday night, you're messed up. <laughs> so that's what was the goal. And it was always like prostitutes, drug dealers, dominatrixes, pimps, johns, homeless people cheating on their wives or husbands. Definitely, I turned over every rock in New York City for about three years while I was doing this. And that, that was a fascinating experience for me, really like a life-changing experience. Was that for HBO? Yeah. How can so, I find that? Well, it was a web series. So really I did it, I would interview, let's say 20 people each week for three years. And I would get a transcription of the interview I had a photographer, so we'd have a bunch of photographs. Very rarely we had video since video wasn't working that well on the internet. And I would have different designers design a page with the interview. So it was very beautiful and all the photographs. Everybody was always interesting looking, like I kind of would focus on that. So some of it's on 
like whatever there's archive.org or internetarchive.org and supposedly one of my friends has it all on a storage somewhere and then I shot that as a pilot for HBO but it never aired but it was a great pilot for political reasons it never aired wow that sounds so interesting and totally at my alley do you still keep in touch with people from your HBO days a little bit yeah I mean I ran into the CEO of HBO he was the CEO at the time he, he then for 20 years he was a very successful CEO of Time Warner until they sold to I guess AT&T and I ran into him at a restaurant and we talked for a while like he remembered me and we talked for a while and then the head of documentaries at HBO for forever she was the head of documentaries I think she's won like 130 Oscars for her documentaries she's a genius named Sheila Nevins she was the biggest player in the world of documentaries for decades because the only place to see a quality documentary was HBO because on PBS they wouldn't spend as much money they didn't have the budget so it was PBS and HBO were the only documentary showers. So HBO had the best ones. And she was just so eccentric and so insane. And I worked directly for her. So tell me, what's the next big idea? Do you want to share it? Sure. I don't mind. Because I'm always a big believer that if someone can steal my idea and do it better, then power to them. Then I am not qualified to do this as a business. But in this particular case, I feel I'm qualified. Right now, we're doing a podcast on Zoom. And... Zoom has 700 million users. Zoom, the company, is worth $140 billion. It's like unbelievable. Since the beginning of the pandemic, it's gone from being worth $30 billion to $140 billion. And, and they've gone from like 100 million users to 700 million users. And Zoom is great for phone calls, like video phone calls. It's great for business meetings. Like, oh, you're in California, I'm here, let's have a business meeting. Zoom did not intend for all the use cases that have happened in, you know, people go to funerals on Zoom, people go to operas on Zoom, like they have virtual operas. I know just being a standard comedian, Zoom comedy is a thing. It never was a thing before, it was Zoom com It's not even called virtual comedy, it's called Zoom comedy. It's at, named after the software, that's what people call it. There's a lot of conferences now happening on Zoom with thousands of people, but it's not good for podcasts. Like, it's good enough for podcasts, and I use Zoom for podcasts. But the video is okay. It's not the highest quality it could be. The audio is actually not that good. Like my audio engineer could always tell when, I'm, when I do a Zoom pod, he could always tell which software I'm using. And Zoom is the lowest quality audio. Not to say it's bad, but an audio engineer can tell. And a million podcasts use Zoom right now. We're getting used to it. And there's other features too. It's not made for podcasts. There are other features that podcasters need that we've gotten by without, but it's, it would be great to have. So I'm simply making software that is the best possible software to do a remote podcast like this on the video will be great. The audio quality will be perfect. And there's other features that are going to just blow people away once I release it, which is hopefully any day now, because I've been working on this for almost since the pandemic began. I'm a technologist, a computer scientist by training it turned out to be much more complicated than I realized, which is good because part of the thing you have to ask yourself when you're starting a business is if this idea is so great, why am I getting this amazing opportunity to do it? You always have to ask like, you know, am I the only person out of 6 billion people who thought of this? That can't be possible. So why didn't get this get done before? 
over time I realized why it didn't get done, particularly with the features that I have in mind, is that it actually turns out to be one of the rare instances in the past 20 or 30 years where the programming is very difficult. Most computer programming is, is not rocket science, it's simple. Thanks to the technology behind the internet, the internet has, made, has simplified a lot of programming tasks. But this is outside the scope of what makes the internet easy to program on because you're dealing with systems issues like video bandwidth, audio bandwidth. You have different bandwidth than my bandwidth, so your quality video might be different than mine. So the timing of uploading it to a server, the costs, everything, everything's different. Literally, I had to look at the resumes and backgrounds of every programmer who worked for every competitor and try to understand why weren't they capable of doing this because some of these ideas are so obvious. But I could see if, if people were really good at programming big data or AI, it's a different type of programming than systems programming. So yeah, so that's been a big challenge and hopefully it'll be done today in some kind of alpha release in the next few days. Anything you want to ask my daddy? I would like to know from his perspective, because I'm a father, I'd like to know from his perspective, what does he feel he did differently than other fathers to inspire such respect and friendship from his daughter? That's a beautiful question. Thank you. This has been really fun. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I wanted to also mention your book, Skip the Line. Yeah, because I feel like I skipped the line to get this interview because Brian Keating, who actually met you in person, made the introduction. And I had been watching your IG lives all summer while I was nursing a baby and sharing you in my IG lives about funny things that you said. And I tried to book you on somebody else's podcast, but then one introduction from somebody who had met you in person and interviewing Craig Stanlin, I feel like sealed the deal. So tell me about skipping the line. Even though I was started writing this before the lockdowns and the pandemic and all that, I'll put it in the context of what's happening now. 55 million people, like I mentioned earlier, were laid off. Tens of millions of people are looking for new jobs, maybe new careers and new industries. And so the first question they might ask themselves is, well, for the past 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, five years, I've been an accountant or a marketing manager maybe I can ask myself, what's, what have I been passionate about? What have I always secretly wanted to do? My theory is you, at any age and in any life situation, you can find the things you're passionate about, which is not easy, but you can find the things you're passionate about. And then you'd say, well, I'm just, I'm passionate about it, but I'm no good at it. Like, how do you get, you, how do you get good at something? I want to make, I got to make a living. So the skip the line is not only finding your passion, but skipping to the top 1% in the field of that passion so you can make money. Only people in the top 1% of a field, doesn't matter what the field is, the top 1% of any field are the only people who make money in that field. So skip the line so you can be in the top 1% of whatever field it is you love and make money. And so in order to do that, you have to learn how to be great at what you love and you have to do it fairly quickly because there's all these BS rules like, oh, the 10,000 hour rule to get good, good at something. It takes 10,000 hours to get great like Mozart did or the Beatles did or whatever. And then you also have to understand, you know, like there's three components to creativity. There's, there's being creative. There's understanding how to be creative. Then there's understanding the domain. And so I just basically describe the techniques mostly that I've used because I've switched prof professions many times. I was a computer programmer. I was a 
TV guy. I was an entrepreneur. I was a writer. I was a salesperson. I was an investor. I was a venture capitalist. I was a podcaster and all of those. I've switched careers a lot and hundreds of people I've talked to on my podcast or hundreds of my friends have also switched careers a lot. So I have a lot of raw material and stories to tell about the techniques for skipping the line. And so that's basically what the the book is about. Part of skipping the line is getting away from the line. Awesome. Okay. I hear my little baby. That's probably my husband's like, what is taking so long? You want to see the baby? Yeah. What's your baby's name? So I named him after my grandfather who is Marvin, but since I felt like it was like a continuation, I took Vin and I'm calling him Vinny. Oh, I like that. It's like an Italian Jew. Exactly. <laughs> Hold on one second. I'll grab him. All right. Hi. Hi. Oh no, why am I hitting myself? Oh wait, where is he? He's disappeared. Oh, there he is. Where, where'd he go? Hi. Hi. Good. That's a good word. Hi. You can say hi and mommy, right? Say mommy. You're the only one that's gotten to meet Vinny. Vinny, I'm so pleased to meet you. You have a wonderful mom, and I'm assuming a wonderful dad and grandpa and other siblings. I hope your siblings are good to you. I was actually due one day after my 12-year-old's birthday, but then he came seven weeks early, so he wanted his uh, own month. Vinny, you're on your own schedule. You wanted your own birthday. His own story. He definitely yeah. got it. Truthfully, I was super nervous about talking to you, but... I had a lot of fun. And yeah, me you. too. And I'm always nervous before I do podcasts. And but then once you get into it, it's it's fine. So and it was a good interview. I had a fun time. It felt like a conversation, which it, it, those are always the best interviews. So that's great. Well, but, thank you so much. This is amazing connecting with you. And I really appreciate all of your time. Yeah, thank you. Oh, boy, let's go to grandpa. What did you do differently to cultivate a special relationship with me? I think what I've done with you and I've done with my father, my mother, with people that I've worked with, uh, with people that I've gone to school with, really with my sisters, with everybody, that I have shown that I'm a giving of myself and that I'm real. And I try to be consistent and set the right example and to try to encourage the people that are around me and try to make them better. When you have your own children, obviously you want to make them uh, better. But I have had this philosophy with everyone that I've been around and everybody that I've worked with or played with or done anything with is to try to see if I can not only make myself better, yes, but I always took a lot of pride in making the people around me better as well. And I think that that is something that is special of people that really do try to get ahead in this world. And it's not just measured in dollars and cents. People will be attracted to those type of qualities and those type of philosophies of life. And isn't that what James has done in his revelation and in the interview that you shared with him? He was able to give you the essence of everything that he's done in his life and all of his experiences and growing pains and he's shared his successes and his failures without an emotional downer or enthusiastic to the point where he's so high where he thinks that he's above it all. He's a down-to-earth, realistic person. 
and has found different ways of succeeding and learning from his mistakes. I think a big lesson that he learned was he had a father that was also very dedicated and hardworking and also tried to better his life and be on a growth path, but he was doing in things that he didn't necessarily even like or was seeing through where he coming up against walls and really could never really achieve what he felt his father was capable of achieving. And he didn't want the same thing to happen to him. So what he did was he took some of his father's failures and decided to add and grow from it and make sure that he was going to be involved in things where he was going to succeed and not let failure get in the way. That he would learn from these things. He'd learn different philosophies he studied. He learned to be an expert at different games, including chess, as you know, we can relate, because I think I had even mentioned that if we I took any of my daughters or sisters to a chess tournament, I would play better. If I got uh, some lessons from Greg Kadenoff, who's one of the super grandmasters, also Roman Zinzikashvili, I would play better. When you surround yourself with talented people at whatever endeavor you're in, you're going to do better. If you're encouraged and you surround yourself with, with intelligent and caring people, you're going to go a lot further. And the funny part is, is as I mentioned in the beginning, is that if you also try to help other people get better, you get better. So your wisdom points go up, not just by thinking that you have to score all the points, but getting others to do well gives you not only satisfaction, but you actually score more points if they're scoring too. I want to tell you about UMAP, a program that shows people who they are and how they'll be most successful. Not only did it win the 2020 Career Innovators Award from Career Directors International, but 100% of UMAP certified coaches recommend the program. Let's hear from the creator of UMAP, Kristen Sherry. This is Kristen Sherry, creator of the UMAP profile. What I love most about my job is all the messages I receive from people around the world who have experienced transformation from UMAP. Just today, I received an email that said, this report is amazingly accurate. You guys nailed it. I should have pursued the career that I used to pretend when I was a young girl, a news reporter. I deeply appreciate all the knowledge and ingenuity that Kristen put into creating this UMAP tool. I now feel a sense of relief that I have found myself again. Are you a coach, a consultant, a leader, or an HR professional who wants to hear your employees or clients have these similar breakthroughs? Consider joining the UMAP certification. All the coaches who go through our program always say the same thing. Of all the certifications I have, this one is by far the most valuable. And the UMAP profile was awarded the 2020 Career Innovation Award by Career Directors International. Visit myumap.com for more information. Information is power. You can find out more information on UMapping and Kristen's various books at bettercalldaddy.com. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.